When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. My guest this week is the Hong Kong pro-democracy activist and Nobel Peace Prize nominee, Nathan Law. Nathan, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you so much, Nathan. Thank you. So I'd like to start by asking you about the situation at the moment in Hong Kong. Now, the the pro-democracy movement was widely covered by news outlets around the world until COVID-19 naturally took centre stage. But ever since, the coverage around the protests and the movement seems to be almost minimal to non-existent. So how has life changed for the people of Hong Kong since the national security law was passed? The national security law was passed last June, and it had an unprecedented effect on Hong Kong people's life and the freedoms that we have. Uh, it authorized uh, the government of uh, sweeping power to prosecute democratic campaigners by their speech or even by their thoughts. So for now, we're in a very dire situation. Our civil society are cracked, uh, basically annihilated. Uh, most of the political campaigners in Hong Kong are either jailed or on the process of being jailed. Um, people, ordinary people, they lose the freedom of speak up their minds. A lot of them, when they chant a certain slogan, display certain um, uh, slogans, they are arrested under the national security law. So Hong Kong now has become an authoritarian police state where people, they just simply don't have any uh, um, rights or freedom to speak what they want and commit political actions. And with that, one of the most significant moves in this clampdown on Hong Kong is the restriction of freedom of speech and the free press. And the most prominent pro-democracy newspaper, Apple Daily, was forced to close back in June this year. And social media is heavily restricted there. So how difficult is it for you and other campaigners to get your message out there when the media is so strictly censored? It's much more difficult when um, one of the most uh, prominent and pro-democracy media outlet like Apple Daily is closed and the others, they are facing enormous pressure so that they cannot as expressive or as um, direct in channeling um, protesters or people like me, our messages. Um, but luckily, we've still got um, social media, people who could still access Twitter, Facebook in Hong Kong, so that we still have our own platform to spread the message. But um, at the end of the day, um, these channels, um, we're not sure whether it will be closed down in the future. Um, and it is, it's, uh, the media and uh, press landscape in Hong Kong is much more closed than before. 
And what about the situation with more established international news outlets as well? Are there many restrictions on their coverage of the pro-democracy movement or are there more sweeping rules that apply to all press outlets, whether they are local or international? We've seen quite occasionally that uh, journalists on the site of protest are being attacked by police, not welcomed, being scouted at. I think that is basically the situation of Hong Kong if you look into a larger, uh, larger landscape. Um, some of the international media, they have already moved out their international or Asian headquarters from Hong Kong to Singapore or to, um, to, to Taiwan, to, to Korea. And we've got um, a lot of uh, local uh, media company uh, that are being bought by Chinese money so that um, their structure and their guidance on uh, doing their journalism has changed um, in order to comply with China in less critical. And you can see um, the, the, the index for Hong Kong's press freedom has been dropping for the past years and to a historical low in these few years. So I, I think um, media as uh, the Chinese Communist Party has been targeting and um, seeing it, uh, seeing free media, free journalism as an enemy of them. Um, they are inheriting that trend in Hong Kong and they're trying to basically close down all independent, independent journalism and maybe in their future goal, um, reporting in Hong Kong serves the Chinese Communist Party's political elite. Okay, well, I'd like to move on away from the media and I'll ask about you and your role in, in this movement. So firstly, how did you initially get involved in working with the pro-democracy activists and uh, getting involved in the senior leadership of the movement? So when I was a freshman of the university, I decided to join the uh, university's student union because I believe that students are the spearhead of change and we're half intellectual. So uh, we have that kind of responsibility to serve the society and try to make a positive change. So um, I decided to run for the student body because uh, the student body has a long tradition of being involved in social affairs and activism. So I was involved in activism with um, the role of uh, uh, the representation of our student union. And I was involved in uh, the Umbrella Movement in 2014 becoming one of the students who took part in the negotiation with the government and then becoming uh, the student leader who people recognize me as um, part, of, part of leadership of that uh, civil disobedi disobedience movement. And, and you mentioned there the umbrella movement back in 2014, and those were really the first major sets of pro-democracy pro protests in, in Hong Kong. Did it surprise you just how much international coverage that those protests and that movement achieved? Well, it was the very first massive civil disobedience movement. Mm -hmm. And before we, we protest, we rally, even though there were civil disobedience movement, but maybe up to 100 people participated in it. And for the other rallies, like we participated in legal authorized rally. But in the umbrella movement, this is the first time the idea of civil disobedience which people would break the law in order to achieve justice uh, was really grounded in Hong Kong. So there were hundreds of thousands of people occupying the streets and demanding democracy from the government. That was really the first time that we've seen such a massive scale and the global attention on what's happening in Hong Kong. Of course, we, we've discussed the media here and uh, how in invasive the government authorities can be 
in, in the pro-democracy movement. So how difficult was it to rally all those hundreds of thousands of people to your cause and get them to join you in those protests? I think it's important that we capture um, the emotion and the ideas of people. Uh, Hong Kong was handed back from the British government to Chinese government in 1997. And back then, Hong Kong people were promised democracy, autonomy, and freedom. And throughout the time, uh, it was 17 years after the handover. In 2014, Hong Kong people still cannot vote for their leaders. Um, they are waiting the government to keep their promises, but they refuse to do so. So I think um, it generally aroused a, a large sense of anger and disappointment or even sense of betrayal from Hong Kong people when they see China, they wanted to close down the, the, the political landscape and to tell all the Hong Kong people that you are not going to have a general, uh, gen genuine uh, universal suffrage. I think that was what mobilized people and we were the ones who stepped out that make the first step of protests, uh, make the first step of committing ourselves on the verge of uh, civil disobedience and uh, the way that we behaved uh, really affected people and attracted them to go with us. And as a part of this one country, two systems that Hong Kong operates, you you do have the availability to, to hold elections. And it, with that, you were involved in setting up the Democisto political party. And of course, you, you first stood for election in 2016, along with the other more high profile activists, including Joshua Wong and Agnes Chow. How much opposition did you get from the Chinese Communist Party and senior government officials in, in your activities and campaigning? So in 2016, even though um, I can I could st stand for election, but the, uh, the composition of the legislature was undemocratic. We've only got half of the seats through direct election and the other half, uh, most of them are appointed by the government. So even though for, the very, for, for every time, in a popular election, the uh, pro-democracy camp enjoys majority, but in the council, we are always minority because of that peculiar design. So even though like in 2016, obviously the pro-democracy camp was the majority, I, I was elected with a large margin and the votes combined for the pro-democracy camp was much larger than the uh, pro-Beijing camp, but eventually we are minority in the council. So definitely um, uh, there were a lot of uh, attacks, a lot of um, like prosecution from the Chinese Communist Party in order to scare off like pro-democracy candidates like me. They eventually pulled off and we enjoy popular support. And that year you became the youngest elected legislature in Hong Kong's history at, at the age of 23, which is a, an incredible achievement. But were the other uh, pro-Beijing aligned lawmakers in the Legislative Council who were elected alongside you, were they willing to work with you or did they just simply try to make life as difficult as possible for you? Well, I think um, the fact that I was elected uh, with a large margin and I display the capacity and the ability to talk about policy and politics, I think in the chamber, no matter it's from uh, the pro-democracy care maybe, um, uh, older generations, politicians, or even across aisle, they, they pay certain respect to me and, um, and, and they act normally. But of course, uh, most of the time, the persecution comes from uh, people uh, like above them. 
So even though like they they did not really have much um agony or or have much like um difficulties in working alongside with pro democracy legislators, but at the end of the day, when the Chinese Communist Party wanted us to be outcast, um, the political persecution would come. And with with that political persecution. What what was the reason given to you that the Chinese authorities actually disqualified you from holding office a short time after your election? Yeah, so um, every legislator has to swear an oath in order to assume office. So I swore it. Um, I quoted Gandhi and and some of my personal belief before and after the oath. That's the council tradition. Uh, that, that have been legislators doing just exactly the same thing and um, they, they could resume office. So I did the same thing and the president approved my oath and then I worked in the council to serve the people for nine months. But a month after the oath of ticking, the Chinese Communist Party uh, issued a reinterpretation on our constitution, which in more advanced uh, regions, uh, the rights of reinterpreting our constitution should belong to the Supreme Court or Constitutional Court instead of a political body like the Chinese Communist Party's uh, standing committee. Uh, but um, at the end of the day, um, the NPCSC uh, issued a reinterpretation on our constitution based on their political needs and to add new requirements on the process of oath taking. And they apply it retrospectively to the oath I took a month ago in order to invalidate my oath and they have added a line saying that if you took your oath incorrectly, you are seen as refusing to take, oath, to take the oath so that they disqualified my oath taking and also refused me to retake the oath. And then I'm outcast. Um, it's clear to the international community and to the legal community that it is a political persecution that the Chinese government created a mechanism to outcast legislators that they don't like. And... Uh- Again, as a result of this, you and a number of your colleagues from Demosisto, you were sentenced to between six and eight months in, in prison for your participation in the 2014 Umbrella Movement. But I mean, you were released early on bail. What, what was life like in the prison for the short time that you were there? Yeah, it was a relatively short time for me. I spent um, two and a half months inside the prison. Um, it was weird because at the beginning of it, the TV were um, all my news. Uh, so the inmates that they, when they pass by uh, myself, they would like peek in and they, they look at me like I'm kind of like an animal in the zoo. And it made me quite uncomfortable, but um, passing through that insecurity, I think the jail in Hong Kong, of course, is not as bad as the ones in mainland China that full of torture, full of the, full of all the nasty things. Um, we are having a very like routine day with, um, with, with, with a design that makes you brain numb, that you try not to think anything else other than live your life. And then trying to make your critical self diminish by repeating tedious work, by allowing you like to to live a, a completely routine life. Um, so I guess like that was not like a really terrible experience, but for me, I, I, I needed to keep very sharp 
and keep my political like and critical self alive and and it, it was quite difficult so it appears that the authorities really wanted to try and make an example of you and your colleagues in Demsisto and in the umbrella movement and naturally that makes you a very prominent figure in in this movement how has your high profile and activism impacted on your family well of course my family didn't agree the fact that i am involved in this like high profile activism because they believe that um it's difficult to to win over the chinese communist party they are like ordinary like lower class like working class people they just wanted to have a stable life and they wanted to provide for their family they want they don't want their families to go in a risky path like that um but at the end of the day like they are convinced that they are no longer to change me so it's it, it's tough like has some kind of like period with them but eventually they they were quite supportive but um after i left hong kong when i go into life of exile in order pr- to protect them i had to sever my ties with them i issued a political statement saying that i'm no longer in any relationship with them because uh taking reference from what happens to the human rights activists in mainland china that uh they are not the ones who are suffering they are not only the ones their families like their wife their children they are also being monitored about or even blocked from leaving the country or even arrested with them so i i don't want that from happening to my family so i made that choice with exile as well how difficult is it to try to get updates on how your your family is and find find out how family and friends are doing who are still living in hong kong yeah i can only do it through like confidential way mm-hmm. indirectly um because whenever i contact them the chinese government could, could accuse them saying that they are assisting my work they're colluding with foreign forces and then to arrest them under the national security law um while i'm already on the wanted list of the national security law just because of my um efficacy for a uh, peaceful protest and democracy for hong kong and as you say you you've been placed in exile and you you've decided to settle in in the, the uk and it appears that beijing is increasing its grip on hong kong and uh, expanding into taiwan and in other areas it seems to be increasing that grasp on power and exerting its influence is the uk do you think do, doing enough to support the people of hong kong well i think uk government has been implementing uh some of the very good policies to help hong kong people including opening up the bnl passage so that uh, millions of hong kong people have the um a a pathway to citizenship if they were to apply um they have issued strong statements condemning the government's uh, government's human rights violation and also uplifting the extradition extradition treaty with hong kong so to protect uh political exiles that the chinese government want to hunt in the uk but of course we wanted uh more from the government including expanding the sanctions to hong kong officials and also having a comprehensive strategy to decrease the reliance on china and work with other democratic allies in order to put more pressure to tackle human rights violation and i think these are important steps to move forward and you meant you mentioned there the uh, granting a, a pathway to citizenship for the the british nationals uh, overseas passport holders and this is a measure our our no, former foreign secretary dominic raab was widely praised for for pursuing but do, do you think 
you, you mentioned there that the, the UK could have gone further, perhaps should have gone further. Do you think as, as, alongside that route for those BNO passport holders, there should have been a separate pathway for other pro-democracy activists? Well, yes, of course, uh, there is um, a group of people that are unable to enjoy the, the, the pathway uh, who are people that um, are not either born in Hong Kong or born after 1997, because when they were born, they were no longer in a British like colony. So they don't have that uh, British national overseas passport. Um, the government could explore more how to accommodate the needs of, of, of these Hong Kong people um, and also um, providing a safe haven for Hong Kongers who are facing political persecution. Um, at the end of the day, um, the, the, the treaty, the Santa British Declaration that um, encompass the promises of uh, democracy, autonomy and freedom assigned by the Chinese government and the British government. And the British government in that sense has certain um, responsibility over it. And how did you find the process of claiming political asylum in the UK? So um, I think a lot of people's experience are quite diverse, um, but we've come up to a conclusion that the, the, the process is lengthy and strict and difficult to, to work on. Um, so I guess there are a lot more education and a lot more changes that could be made uh, in order to help those in need. And now that you've settled in London, your, your activism seems to have moved towards a direction of lobbying Western parliamentarians and world leaders. How much support have you received from meetings that you've held with those high profile political figures? Well, I think doing awareness raising work um, is important because um, uh, these congressmen and, and parliamentarians, they need people to remind them what is important and uh, what are on the table that they should address. Um, so I think uh, it's important that we continue to have a voice and to meet them to pass bills that are helpful to Hong Kong and also um, becoming a person like this can um, help us to build personal relationship with them so that uh, in the future, they are more in incentivized to help Hong Kong. I think uh, these are important work that we need people to work on. And when Donald Trump was president of the United States, he appeared to be quite a, a strong champion of your cause. And he, he did, placed a number of measures which uh, really de dented the, the Hong Kong officials, such as uh, imposing a number of sanctions and ending preferential treatments for free trade on the island. Has that level of support from the United States changed in any way since Joe Biden took office? Well, I think Hong Kong issue has always been bipartisan. Um, so as to turning a tougher stance and more assertive stance to, to, Hong, uh, to, to China. Um, so I think um, both parties agree on a lot of core principles on how we approach China and how we approach Hong Kong. So that I think even though there has been a transition of administration, then the big picture and the general direction of um, turning a more tough side uh, to China has remained the same. Um, of course, uh, for now, as we've been through a lot of turbulent domestic politics in the US and um, selling through the difficult COVID times, um, the attention paying to like foreign affairs and human rights violation in Hong Kong and in China um, have been uh, dwindled 
But um, I think uh, the general direction is still the same. And I hope that the Biden administration could work more with uh, the Hong Kong community um, outside uh, the city, like in the diaspora and overseas community to try to um, understand more how they feel and uh, getting acquainted with uh, how China behaves and then to help hold them accountable with necessary means. Uh, another ser- serious set of human rights violations committed by the Chinese government is, is taking place against the, the Uyghur Muslims in Xinjiang. I know this is an area that you, you've spoken out on a, a number of times. And we had the human rights campaigner, Benedict Rogers, who I believe you, you know. He came on the show a few weeks ago, and he argues that what's happening in Xinjiang to the Uyghurs am- amounts to genocide. Would you agree with his assessment on that? Well, um, we're not seeing genocide like like we saw in the last century because of the advancement of technology, advancement of um, um, the, the, the authoritarian tactics that these regimes could deploy. But definitely we can see ample evidence that Beijing um, treats the Uyghurs in that region with an aim of annihilate their culture or even annihilate, annihilate their race. And to a certain degree, that amounts to the accusation of genocides even though you don't see mass execution or mass killing pictures of bodies piling up like a mountain. But in essence, they are locking millions of people in a camp which they have no freedom to leave, which they don't know when to leave, and they don't know the reasons why they are there. And they're forcing them to forget their culture, their religious practice, learn um, to plead allegiance to a regime that they may not agree with, uh, that they have trouble uh, getting acquaintance to, and um, their culture uh, will be lost. Anyone who advocates their culture will be thrown to these concentration camps. And, um, and we, we have no data about how many people died or, 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 or how many people could make it alive. Um, there, there are evidence showing that they are being tortured they're, they're, they're being sexually harassed or abused. I think these are like the ample evidence that we can come up to a conclusion that the Chinese government in order to uh, remain, trying to remain or trying to craft a highly homogenous country, they are trying to annihilate other culture and race. We mentioned that, that there is a, a wide body of evidence to su- suggest that such gross human rights violations. So. Uh, Taking all that into account, do you think other countries are actually doing enough to stand up for the Uyghur people? And if not, what do you think other countries should be doing to raise awareness and help the, these people in, in the camps? Well, I think definitely they are, they're, they're very reluctant to do more. Like we've seen a lot of sanctions on Xinjiang officials. Um, but for example, the, 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 um, the use of Xinjiang cotton, which... Uh, is uh, the product that are produced under forced labor from this uh, human rights violation uh, are still not an official policy to really abandon the usage of these things. And international brands are reluctant to do so because they are worried that it may upset the Chinese governments. And also the, 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 the Beijing uh, Winter Olympic uh, take, takes place in next year is also um, operating going well uh, be, like not many countries are expressing signals of at least diplo- diplomatic boycott to it which it may turn to be um, a window dressing for these authoritarian and countries 
which has been committing atrocities. So I think these are perspectives to look into the issue and um, we, we just need more measures to, to, be, um, to be adopted in order to address the problem. One of the most striking issues around the uh, persecution of the weak people is the fact that the Chinese government are simply trying to cover it up. They're trying to cover up aspects of uh, what, what is happening in Hong Kong. And it's, n- it's not just the cover up of what's happening at the moment, but also covering up what's happened in the past. And a, a prime example of this is the Tiananmen Square massacre. And we've, we've seen just this week that the University of Hong Kong, which has Carrie Lam as its chancellor, has demanded that the famous pillar of shame sculpture, which was erected in remembrance of the massacre, it, they've demanded that it be removed by the 13th of October. When, when you hear stories like that, do you worry that future generations possibly won't be taught about such important events like Tiananmen Square or, or even the, the umbrella movement, which you were involved in? Well, yes, certainly I'm worried. Um, the Hong Kong government, is undoubtedly trying to watch all those like local history, like memory that may be critical to the government, following the footsteps of the Chinese government, uh, their, their behavior in mainland China. So there is a chance that we will lose all these educational, even materials in Hong Kong regarding the Tiananmen Massacre umbrella movement and the 2019 protest. So for me as a person who is living outside of Hong Kong, um, free from the threats of the national security law, I think the overseas committee uh, has the responsibility to preserve this information, preserve these cultural uh, cultural products, and bears um, a responsibility to inherit and continue this 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 history to provide um, uh, an accurate description of it uh, out of uh, the interference of the mainland. The Chinese government or, or the Hong Kong government. And what way you're helping to make sure people don't forget what, what's happening, especially around Hong Kong and the umbrella movement, is through your new book, Freedom, which will be released in November. Now, whilst the title might be somewhat self-explanatory, could you give the, the listeners an idea of what the book is about? Yeah, this book is about uh, how my story reforms with the fate of the city. Um, for the past few years, what I've encountered in terms of political persecution has been a reflection of the erosion of freedom in this city. And uh, the process of erosion has an exemplary um, um, effect towards the world uh, because uh, it shows the toolbox an authoritarian regime could use to erode a city's freedom and how quickly it could be done. And also uh, this could remind uh, the international readers, especially those who are living in democratic countries, how fragile our freedoms are and how vigilant we have to be in order to protect freedom. So it is not only for Hong Kong people, it's actually for all of you to take a look um, how Hong Kong, Hong Kong's freedom are eroded and then to reflect to your society and ask yourself what we can do to protect it as it is so fragile. What do you hope people will take away from reading the book? You mentioned there that the idea that the principles of freedom are so fragile as the case in Hong Kong. But what, what is it that you hope will really resonate with the reader? Well, as an activist, my duty is to empower people, to let them to believe that change is possible and they're there to, to make the change, uh, to precipitate the change. I hope that um, I'm not only doing this for Hong Kong people, but for the people around the world. Um, I hope readers can learn um, 
a lot of things from the book, but also feel empowered um, and step out from their comfort zone to do their advocacy work, which um, aims at changing the society and make it into a better direction. So just to finish, the, the one country, two systems principle of governance in Hong Kong is set to expire in June 2047. Now, that, that does seem like it's a long way away, but in, in reality, it, it's coming closer and closer. Are you hopeful that freedom will return to Hong Kong before then, or do you think Beijing will simply continue to clamp down on democracy? Well, I think one country, two system has already ended way before um, the 50 years mark arrived. If you're thinking that one country, two system represent the pillars uh, autonomy, democracy and freedom, these are basically not existent anymore in Hong Kong. Um, and we are foreseeing, at least in the um, uh, foreseeable future, that um, the pressure in Hong Kong will be increasing and the short-term future is dire. But um, I think in the long-term future, as we have seen um, how Chinese, the Chinese government is facing a lot of troubles, um, the totalitarian um, model is not that sustainable. The world is more awakened towards this threat and we are piling up pressure on them. I do believe in the long-term future, there is possibility to change. My hope is uh, in decades time, maybe, but in the future, I would definitely step foot in Hong Kong again. And um, I would enjoy with my people there uh, to celebrate the free and democratic Hong Kong. Nathan Law, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you so much. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.